0: What I'm going to talk about this evening is I want to talk about questioning, but in a kind of general way. Then we'll get more to kind of detail. And I want to look with questioning a little at our goal, why we are doing what we are doing, enlightenment, awakening, and basically what are we doing and why we are doing it. And why I'm doing this is because actually a lot of you, I have, have been meditating for some time, and also there's some of you are totally new, but I think the talk could be good for both, <laughs> hopefully. And first, I'd like to say that I'm not going to provide you answers as such, but I want to, let's <coughs> say, provoke some questioning, some reflection into your own motivations, Expectation, aspiration. And I think in a way we are meditating, we are doing this retreat and it's because we have some aspiration in our life. It's because there is something which brings us to this place. There is some kind of something, we want something, we desire something, we hope, we aspire to something. And I do think it's kind of important time to time to stop and to reflect. What is the framework? What is the ground for that aspiration? What actually are the images, language associated with it? And what are the influences of that? And because it seems to me that if you look and explore our aspiration, our framework, our ground, often you find again and again recently I've reflected that there are these two aspects uh, to religious, spiritual, meditative practice, it seems to me, and what I, w- I would call them the absolute and the relative, and I know I'm, I'm not a philosopher, so <laughs> don't, what I'm talking about is very much taken from my uh, experience and not at all from any philosophical treatises, so do just look at it that way. And it seems to me that a lot of the language, of the spiritual path, of religion, of meditation, very often is actually coming very much from the absolute perspective. And I think this leads to certain effect in our mind, in our aspiration, in our expectations. And that's what I would like to look at first. Because look at the language. That often is used in, on the spiritual path. That we are looking for something which is beyond, something which is transcendent, something which might even be perfection, possibly truth, freedom. And what do these words imply? I think, the, I mean, the first thing we have to see is that these words are very attractive. I mean, who doesn't want to go beyond, to transcend this stuff? Who doesn't want perfection? Who doesn't want truth? I mean, truth, no? What is it? And this is a question. Freedom. Great freedom, I want it. Freedom from what? Freedom where? Freedom to what? Again, what are the context of these words? And to me, I think that in this kind of, what I would call, absolute language, there are certain implications. Implications that as we're in here in meditation, we are looking for something which is somewhere else, it seems to me. We are, if we look for something which is beyond, transcendent, it seems to imply that that something we're going to possibly get one day is a conditional, is beyond any condition. And I think because of that, we, to me, it's nearly like the image I have is a golden pot at the end of the rainbow. You know, you see a rainbow. Whenever I see a rainbow, I think, oh, there must be a golden pot. <laughs> And I know perfectly well, there is no golden pot. But back to these kind of images that we taught as children. And I think it, is, it seems to be the same if we come for uh, a absolute framework. I think it is rather dangerous. We actually, I think we are setting ourselves up. And I think this is the danger of it. Because basically what we say is that we say, I want to be someone else. I want to be somewhere else. There is, it seems to imply that, you know, you're sitting in meditation and then one day, one bang, you know, light flashes, you start to float and whatever happens, and then you're going to be beyond. (laughs) You know? What does that mean? Literally, if you take this literally, I mean, it's kind of weird, <laughs> you know. It's like you go beyond, you transcend everything. You are somewhere else. You are someone else. And I think it has various effects. One of, of the ethics is that it, in a way, negates where you are now. It totally pulls down the now. And also, I think again and again, I come with this kind of language. We say yes. Behind, behind, there is something, something. You know, something, that this is not okay whatsoever. I want to, you know, I want to go somewhere else. I want to be somewhere else. But unfortunately, I mean, this is from my own experience, which could be rather limited. You know, I have, so far, personally, I have never seen anybody go beyond <laughs> or manifest anything that seems to be truly beyond. So that's one thing. Another thing that I think it slightly implies is that by going beyond, transcending, going to perfection, we're going to leave all the mess behind. Over there, it is beautiful, pinky, bluey, whatever is your favorite color, goldeny. And yes, you know, no mess, you know, no blood, guts, tear, whatever. Not there. And you kind of, you know, it's like we're going to this verified realm. And once we're there, everything is going to be fantastic. Easy is true. You know, how does it work? You see, that's that the image you have. And look at the literal, in a way, implication of it. You know, easy that you get there, and you're in your beautiful verified real, and you don't care about anybody else being in their mess. Or is it that at the moment you get there, everybody gets there too? And we all, for the future, happy-go-lucky forever after. Possibly. Who knows? Who knows? Another one, I think, another implication, and that you'll find it in the text again and again and again, is that conditions, things, and I think it comes back to what I said about yesterday, the passage about empty objects. There is this assumption in this absolute view that things are illusory, everything is illusion and that in a way the aim of the practice is to see everything as illusory and once you get there, everything is illusion, so everything goes, doesn't it? Everything is illusion. But what is interesting often with this view is that everything out there is illusion. But this here doesn't seem to be that illusory, according to what the people do. It doesn't seem to be too illusory. It seems to be very kind of, you know, they do all kind of naughty things. Well, not really illusory, but that's another matter. And I think because of that, and I think that's what the point of the passage yesterday, was when you said that emptying object without emptying the mind will actually lead to the object getting to you. And I think that's what happens. If you say that you are seeing that everything is illusory, you are saying, you know, everything out there is illusion. Often you, sometimes you even say, you know, I am illusory too, but that, you know, that doesn't seem to manifest itself so much. I think then you really disregard conditions. And generally what happens is conditions bite back, and they get you. And all kinds of things happen to you when you do that. And so again, I think when one says everything is illusion, nothing out there is real, what does it really mean? I mean, as well, it's kind of, you know, very interesting. Oh, yes, you know, it's an illusion. But what does it really mean? What Has it got anything to do with my experience? And the fact, but often what you're told, is because you don't see things as illusion, you're not enlightened. And only when you see them that way, then this is it. So you are in double bind. You know, you must see them that way. Otherwise, forget it. You'll never get there. And again we have to be careful with this type of language, because I think an absolute type of language makes you it's very easy for you to feel that you are not there whatsoever. Because you're here, because you are in the condition. And that type of language is in condition you are beyond conditions. Conditions are not that important. And what is interesting then is generally, if you have this type of absolutist language and people say, you know, like often you have this description on various retreats of people, especially in the Zen retreats, sometimes of, you know, people getting awakening experience. So you see here and suddenly, wow, you have this kind of whatever, I mean, they have all kinds of ways to describe them, you know, these experiences. And what is very interesting with these experiences is that you think, oh yes, yeah, this is it. You know, I've got this beyond transcendent. And because you equate the experience with transcendence, very often people say they are beyond conditions. And what that means is that they are beyond ethics. And they start to do lots of not (laughs) things. But, you know, if they're beyond it, why do they need to do these things? If these things are illusory, why do they need to do these things? You know, and that's what really puzzles me here. (laughs) Anyway, I won't go into that one, this is not this kind of talk tonight. I don't mean by by, by kind of all these various descriptions and questions, I don't mean that we do not have experience in meditation, or outside of meditation, which are not, what I would say, Ineffable, indescribable, which are kind of special, which seems to be special. Of course, when we're seeking meditation, sometimes we do feel extremely different. But what are we experiencing? Are, are we experiencing ourselves as somebody else? Or are we experiencing ourselves without grasping? Because the way we feel at any given moment only you know, is very constructive around grasping and tension. And if that goes, then we feel very differently. But it doesn't mean that we are not in the condition. It doesn't mean that we've gone beyond or transcended anything. I think what it means is that we have let go of grasping for that moment. But, it doesn't, but, but the question often of this um, kind of very special thing that you cannot really describe in these experiences, what is interesting with them is that they do not last, it seems to me. They come, you experience them, and they go. And it seems to me they come upon certain conditions, they stay according to other conditions, and they go according to other conditions. And often I think what we do is we say, oh, this happened to me, this is me, this is it forever after. And in a way, I think, in a way, by doing that, actually I think we stop ourselves from having more experience or what I would call a slightly different nature, what I would not call then transcending nature, because you are not somebody else, somewhere else at that moment you generally are who you are, but actually, I would say, without the grasping. And within that, I think often there is this idea that the more we practice, the more we're going to be enlightened, or whatever we see it, but the more, I mean, maybe enlightened is too far off so we won't talk about it, but the more equanimous we will be. And again, I find that very interesting, his word equanimity, equanimous, and what we think this will do for us. It seems to imply again that if we are equanimous, we are going to be beyond conditions. That no matter what happens to us, we are not going to be moved. And then people come to me and they say, I have practiced for 20 years, and I still get irritated, or I do this and I do that. If I, my meditation is good enough, I should not. Why are you saying that? Because you assume that equanimity is conditional. is beyond conditions. And it seems to me not. It seems to me that's not what equanimity means. Equanimity, to me, seems to mean that, again, you are trying not to grasp, but it does not mean that you are not affected by the condition. Of course, possibly, somewhere, sometime, we might get to this 100% equanimity. And does it mean that permanently we are even? This I do not know. I do not know yet. I don't think so, so far, but who knows, I could be wrong there. I would not argue on that point. But you see, why am I saying all this? It is a little actually due to experience, not my own poultry experience. Don't worry, it's not fast not But it is because of observing people who are supposedly awakened. And again and again, I am struck. Again and again, I am struck by the fact that these great teachers are not, do not seem to be beyond culture and experience. Again and again, I meet these people and they have a great awakening. I mean, my teacher, Master Kuzan, had had three great awakenings. And at the third, his teacher said, before I was your teacher, now I will become your disciple. So obviously, he got something which was, you know, Higher there, if we are measuring this kind of thing. But I got—I mean, I got to know him for about nine years, and towards the end, I just traveled with him, and traveling with him was—and being around him was very interesting, because at one level, he was really amazing, at the level of of being open, of being spacious, of being creative. He was amazing. I was his translator. And so again and again people would ask me very tricky questions. And I would see that thinking, is he going to be able to answer that one? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and always he could. He always he came with something. It was really, it was not repeating. It was just right to the point in that moment to that person. He was very creative. He was very wise. He was amazingly compassionate. And he was truly amazingly equanimous. I can remember us travelling, because uh, we thought we did not, anyway, it's a long story, but we did not think we had so much money, so we were travelling, let's say, cheap, But like, it was like I was travelling with this Archbishop of Korea, in Korea it was put really up there. In Europe, due to the finances, we were travelling kind of cheap, but I remember being in Hamburg station, I don't know if anybody has been in Hamburg station, but at midnight it's a little kind of, you know, dour place. At so, uh, midnight, waiting for the train, we had to stand there for 40 minutes, and I was his attendant. And my responsibility as his attendant was to make him comfortable. This was upper on my mind. And so I was looking for a place for him to sit. There was no seat available, the place was full. And so I was running like a headless chicken. And he said, What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, Well, I'm looking for a place for you to sit. And he said, I don't need to sit. We can just stand. It's okay. Relax. Cool. And so that's what we did for 40 just standing at the station in Hamburg. And again and again he would demonstrate this very equanimous kind of ability he had in high, low, or whatever circumstances. But still, there was places where he would not. There was places where he would show Distinctly, discrimination, preferences, bias, etc. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them, I mean, my favorite one, is, uh, I went to see him one day, I don't know, I was doing something, translating or whatever for him, some letters, something, suddenly he looked at me and he said, oh yes, my name then, you know, and out of the blue, you know, you must really pray very hard to be reborn as a man. He's <laughs> saying this to this young French woman who is rather a feminist, but... And so I, I said, but Master, Master, those of the Buddhas say that men and women equally can become enlightened, da 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 And he said, oh yes, 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 he said, so yes, it's true, it's true, you too can become enlightened, but still, it would be such a good idea. <laughs> So, we agreed to disagree. And I think what was interesting is that I think it was just, I mean, how is the free he was, and he was, to us he was very equal, men and women, he was still embedded in the patriarchal culture. And again and again I could see that, he was embedded in his culture, and he could not in a way go beyond it, it was very obvious to me. And maybe we cannot, the aim of meditation. Is not to go beyond our culture. Maybe that's not the place of meditation. Maybe that's not where awakening, enlightenment takes place. Another thing that I noticed with him is that he did not seem to be able to go beyond his own experience of meditation, his own experience of practice. So whenever we would travel, he would go and say, you know, the true words, because he had the true method. And the worst time was when, uh, and this is still on tape for anybody who wants to listen to this, uh, when he was invited to Barry, Massachusetts, which is a little like Gaia House, but uh, in America. And he was very impressive. And they were doing a three-month retreat. They had just been doing it for a month and a half, for a big a month and a half, watching the breath, right? And here comes his Zen master they're very impressive looking and very wise looking and, and all the attributes, you know, to make him seem this amazing person. And the first thing he said, you are just a cops. The thing you've been doing for the last month is pure rubbish. <laughs> watching the brass is just like watching a dead cop. What's the point? <laughs> what you must do is this. And then he explained to them. So, of course, <laughs> Afterward, people were, were a little trifled, uh, little buzzard. and uh, Sharon and Joseph had lots of work on their hands, and Master Pudan was never invited again. <laughs> <laughs> and again and again you would say that, you know, because, and it's not. I think the reason, you see, you could say, oh, well, if you say this is because he's not enlightened, he's not awakened, not at all. I think it's because he only knew his experience. You know, historically, geographically, culturally, he was embedded in the Zen experience. And that's all he knew. So for him, this was it. And he could not go beyond that. But it doesn't mean that he did not achieve whatever he achieved. But I think when we think of enlightenment, awakening, the path as it leading us to something which is beyond. What do you mean? We do mean by that. And maybe what is meant is that we're only going to be beyond our grasping. Not much further than that. We're not going to be beyond our culture, beyond our experience. I think it's very important to notice that. And it's not only with my teacher. I notice the same with Tina Tan, I notice the same with uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, which I think they are great teachers, they are amazing teachers. But again and again, see, the one or twice quite close in the, with them, I notice the same. Again, they were limited by their culture and their experience. And this taught me that maybe what we looking for is not what this absolute language list- leads us to literally believe. We're going to find. And I think the danger is that if we measure what we are doing to that, we'll never get there, and we'll feel very disheartened, actually. And I think another thing. I mean, this is just a side sideline, but I think it's a, a kind of interesting <laughs> because you see, you have all these teachers, and they come and they say all these wonderful things, in there, and you feel, oh yes, yeah, they look very equanimous, these guys. But you know, these people, when they come to a different retreat center, what they ask for sometimes is really weird, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean the, 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 I mean, the best one was kind of recently. Recently, something, somebody uh, could not stay in a room because there was a certain smell. They had to move. So they might have been very equanimous, but they were not. They could not go beyond the smell, obviously. <laughs> Another one was, we had a teacher come. And she was, you know, talking very much from this absolute point of view of being aware and, you know, being beyond this, that, and another. And then she came to the retreat and said, by the way, I need grapes, white grapes, not red grapes. (laughs) I need bottled water, that kind, not this kind. And I need a massage every day. And fair enough. I mean, you know, we were happy to provide it. But again, it's only me. Wait a minute, equanimous beyond beyond what? <laughs> <laughs> Not certain conditions. <laughs> and I think often we fear, we hope, I fear, that we will, that through meditation, we're going to go beyond our physicality, that these bodies who sometimes is wonderful, but a lot of the time is a headache, and painful, and arthritic, or whatever, that this is going to make us go beyond it. You know, we become enlightened, and we kind of get a 20 years old body in that moment, or something. Oh, if not that, we will be so beyond any of these illusory physical aspects, that whatever it does won't bother us. I think this is a side is a of what we think. And I think, yes, there is one way to go beyond physical conditions. And that way is asceticism. And if you go to India, you can see a lot of this. People who do all kinds of amazing things, which truly go beyond what we think the body is capable of. But the problem is they don't do anything else you know, they are silent forever, they are buried in earth forever, they stand on one feet forever. So that's it. I mean, if that's what you want to do with your life, fine. But if you want to have a kind of little more multifaceted kind of life, possibly you might not choose asceticism as a way forward. But no, there is no doubt that there you can go. There you can go beyond physical condition, but if you do that, these are these own conditions from which you can get out of. That's what is interesting there, and I think at that level, in a way, that nowadays it's kind of uh, in, among the teachers, the meditation teachers. It every, often people mention the uh, Ramdas. I don't know if all of you know Ramdas, this amazing teacher. Amazing. If you listen to his talk, he's really amazing, so charismatic, so funny, so he really has got something. And then he was able to do this for more than 20 years, maybe more than that. And then recently, I think he had either a stroke or a heart attack. And then he got half paralyzed, and then he could not take care of himself whatsoever, and he had to have kind of a lot of the nerve and care and everybody was very, very worried about him and what was nice is that everybody rallied around him because he had no money because, you know, when you are a teacher you don't think about these things. You think a little you are beyond conditions Can you get your nursing bill, and then that gets a little more problematic. And so now he's actually getting better through the care, through, through his own, I think, willpower. He's kind of getting a little better, he can speak a little, he can, you know, be more kind of in the public. and people ask him, how is it now, you know, what you had gained before, how is it now? And he said, I mean, I can't really say so about him, but what he seems to say is that this was a shock. <coughs> when this happened, this was a total shock. Because I think he had, again, this impression that he was slightly inconditional, I think. And then this made him say, no, I am totally within this condition. And what he said now he does that in a way, his spirituality has much matured through that process. And now, in a way, he has to be spiritual within these very sick conditions. And actually, when you, you you read about him nowadays, it's, he continues to be amazing, but in a very different way. And so, it seems to me that maybe there might be this, as, this absolute possibly aspect in some way to the practice. But would it be more wouldn't it be more useful and beneficial to put a little more emphasis and consideration to what I would call the relative aspect of the practice. And that maybe this is more what it is about. This is more what we do. And that framework of course is not so grandiose. It's much more ordinary, much more simple. But then I think it's very much part of the Buddha's middle way. being on the relative path, being very much within the condition. Working with the condition seems to me to be the middle way that the Buddha talked about. When he said we should not go fall into asceticism or or nihilism and we should not fall into hedonism or permanentism or there is a special name for it, I forgot. And that, in a way, possibly enlightenment is not being something amazing, but actually it is the process of relinquishing, the process of, in a way, dissolving, losing what we have accreted, losing that grasping tendency we have. And that, in a way, also enlightenment is a process of understanding, I would say understanding conditions and at the bottom line of not going beyond but of really being here and developing all the wisdom, all the compassion we are capable of. And only when we are in conditions can we demonstrate, display, express our wisdom, our compassion. And it seems to me that the, the root of that enlightenment, that awakening, is the understanding, the seeing, the so being aware of conditions as they arise, as they manifest, and to see how they influence us. So that in a way we are not surprised by conditions, but we flow within them. Because this is to me the great danger to think that we are meditation is a conditional. When I meditate I should be always the same, with the same concentration, same inquiry, same state of mind. But it is very much according to condition, to what goes on, inner and outer, to that process, that meeting together. And that in a way, at the root of enlightenment, there is this idea of emptiness. But that emptiness again, is not this void, is not this nothing, this be all nothing, even then. So that actually, what, what does emptiness mean? What it means is that actually everything is a flow of conditions. And it seems to me that's what we do in meditation. That's what we're trying to learn, that everything is a flow of conditions, myself, and everything around, everything comes upon conditions. And the, in a way, the way of meditation is to see how conditions are a myriad of them. That often I think we get stuck on one condition, or we try to go beyond that condition. But actually we don't realize how everything is made up of so many, especially us, we are made up of so many different conditions from the past and even in this moment, what happens to us, what we listen to, what we read, when we're outside, when we're inside, that actually there is all these conditions, there is all these conditions being processed, being in this process. And it seems to me that what meditation is about is how to see, to understand conditions, how to be with them, how to be of them, differently. So of course there is that thing, which is different. But it's not going beyond them, but actually being inside them, but differently. And what is the difference? And I would say the difference is that there is no grasping. To me, it seems to me that in a way is the root of the practice, is that not grasping, that relinquishing at so many different levels. And it seems to me that's why the practice is a lifelong practice. Because we're grasping at so many things, and we have so many opportunities to grasp, that we let go of this one, and only one will appear. Let go of that one, then this will appear. And that in a way, this is not so... This is not daunting. This is not daunting at all. This is fun. This is life. I'm not sure if this is what we were born to deal with conditions, (laughs) but actually that's what we can do, and possibly meditation can help us to do. And this not grasping, I think very much coming back to something maybe more what we're doing during this week, I think very much the not grasping, the letting go, comes out actually of questioning. If I come back to the 2nd haha the second title, second word in the title, questioning. Here it comes. And it seems to me very important that questioning, that concentration, helps us with the spaciousness, with the stillness, with the quietness. But then we very much need also to work on questioning, because questioning is what, in a way, the, the concentration mm. Help the questioning to come and help us to, to dissolve, to let go of the grasping. And that's why, at that level, I would say the power is very much about the three characteristics. And I'm sure all of you must have her- heard about this famous three characteristics the dreaded, impermanence, unreliability, emptiness. And actually, This is so ordinary, because impermanence, we can see this now. We can know this now, as we sit here. We can be aware of it. And you see, at an intellectual level, we all know, yes, fair enough, it's impermanent. I know that. Things are unreliable, of course, I know that. Things are empty, not self, that's a little more difficult. I think there is more work to do there. (laughs) But you see, this is intellectual. At the intellectual level, yes, we can agree to this. But I think questioning is very much at the organic level. It's kind of actually in the experience, being present to that sound and noticing it's gone. Being present to that sensation and noticing it's made up of all the things. Looking into the thought and it's gone, it's not there. When you're lost in it, it's there. When you look at it, it's gone. And... I see the three characteristics. Can I do the three characteristics in six minutes? Possibly, yes. Let's, let's go for it. <laughs> I just wanted quickly to go through them, just in terms of looking at them and, and non-grasping. Because, in a way, you can tell yourself, I am a good Buddhist meditator, I have meditated for 5, 10, 20 years. I must not grasp. <laughs> I want not grasp. And the next second, you go on, grasp at the thought sensation, feeling, sound. You grasp at it and you go on with it. All kind of place. I'll talk more about it tomorrow morning. But you see, that's why again and again we have to question, we have to inquire, we have to look and see. No. For example, death. It's there. Death is present in this minute. Since I'm born, the possibility of death is there. But I really don't live like it is there. I am sitting there thinking, yes, you know, meditation, concentration. What about the removal man on Monday? Yes, they're coming, and I'm pretty sure they're coming, and I'll be there. But I could be dead, in the, you know, I could drop dead in the next second. Not fun for you, but it's possible. Who knows? And you see, if, that I truly believe, if we were every moment in a way being aware that death is possible, we would not grasp so much. But at the same time, we would not be in despair. Because in that moment, we would see the possibility of that moment. Instead of saying, oh, God, this is a terrible moment, I can't meditate, I'm hopeless, I do this, that. If you thought, well, am I done?" Then, yeah, wait, wait a minute, you know. Breath, sound, yeah, I am here. You know? <laughs> and the same with tense. If you really know tense I mean, we, I don't know why. It could be in our gene, it could be, I don't know, social, cultural, whatever. But we have this tendency to permanentize. This is, I mean, this is a new word. I know permanentize, but we do this all <laughs> the time. There is no word for it, but we do it. You know, you have headache. <gasps> you sit in meditation. You have to have headache. Oh, meditation is causing this headache. I'm going to have this headache for the whole week. This is dreadful. I should get my money refunded. You know, meditation is not simple. You know, and off you go. I mean, you have whatever. You weep. It's very rare. But we don't permanentize. But but we know things change. You cannot keep anything 24 hours a day. day. When you said you know this is always like this, you mean 24 hours a day, day in day out, week in week out. You can't keep it. You can't even if you want to. You can't. It's not possible. And so you know, I think if we really knew change, we would not grasp because we would see the pointlessness of the grasping. And I think that's where the characteristics help us to see the pointlessness of this habit that we have, which makes us suffer for no good reason. So we don't grasp because it's bad to grasp, but we don't grasp because it's pointless. What's the point? It's kind of a little kind of, you no. Know, why do I do this? And the same with unreliability. You know, the second characteristic is that things are unreliable. But we don't believe that. I mean, they hit us again and again. You know, the car breaks down, your body breaks down, this, this happens, that happens. But we still think one day, somewhere, we will find something which will give us ultimate happiness forever after. And you might think meditation is going to do it for you, but it won't. This is something I can guarantee. It might make you more content, more peaceful, less grasping, but it sure can give you happiness forever after. Unless possibly you get this 100% equanimity, then possibly. We don't know, though. We don't know about that. And so, we are, you see, we, I think we have this, uh, we get addicted to the hope that one day Something is going to make us happy. You see the whole thing we do? It's not just the end of it. Just we become addicted to the hope. So what we do is that we kind of, you know, we work hard. I'll get the right job, the right partner, the right meditation, the right teacher, whatever it is. And you get it. How long does it last? Not very long. Then the next one. This one did not work. Next one. And then off we go. And that way it becomes relatively frustrating, when actually if we really understood, so yes, things change, but because they change, they are reliable. Then what's the point of grasping? And then, instead of wanting things, you look more at, what do I need? Because of course you need something, I and mean, this is a relative point of view. You need something. You need shelter, you need clothes, you need food, you need medicine. But how much of this do you need? And how more than that do you need? And looking at that, I think it's very interesting in terms of grasping. Ones and needs. And the last one, of course, is emptiness, not self. And to me, this is, you know, the the one who goes who kind of takes the longest time, because I think the first two are relatively easy to get and to start to already, I'm sure all of you already understand them, and already experience them, and already practice that. And this, I would believe, has helped you already. But emptiness, not self, this I think is the hardest. Because we have such a tendency to grasp, actually the grasping is what makes this happen, actually. And so the two kind of, you have to work on the two together. In order for the grasping to go, for you to realize that actually you are not any one condition. Also inside here, there is not a little cube that says "Martine" for all time, forever. I'm just this bundle of processes, of conditions. And so, since I am that, why should, I can't grasp at it? What's the point of grasping at this floor? I mean it's like kind of trying to grasp water, I mean you grasp water, I mean of course if you have a huge big hand and you've got your hand like this, then of course you get a bit of water, but you can't really grasp it, you know, you can just put your hand in it and then the water is there for a little while, that's all you can do, you cannot grasp at it and I think often what we're trying to do is grasp at this flow and when I mean flow of condition I literally mean it's flowing, it's moving. and we can't grasp at it, and so when we see this, when we know this, then again it's much easier for us not to grasp. So, my time is up. So now there is uh, a walking meditation, and then we'll sit together again at 8. And thank you for the coffee plunger. Stephen will be very happy for breakfast. Mm They disappeared. Now they have reappeared. <laughs> They're not grasping at the coffee person, <laughs> which is illusory, of course. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.